to the to the new HSF Digital Academy Studio from the basement. Hopefully the audio quality is a bit better, a little less wind, and let's get this started. Works best with headphones. All right, let's do this. Chapter uh, 12, Psych 1040. Here we go. So uh, I almost took this picture out. This is a picture of, of my little girl when she was much younger, when she was only one. But, uh, you know, her quote's important. I think that uh, I'm going to try to make these as good as I can, because I honestly I really like you guys. I hope that I can make this, uh, you know, digital experience somewhat decent. And I can't, I can't hide the fact I got a massive bald head. I'm just going to live with it. Okay, next slide. This is the point in the course where I think things take a pretty major turn and where we get focusing a lot more on things that might seem specifically kind of personally, practically relevant. Um, and why I say that is because in a developmental psych course, the majority of the course is focusing on early life. And, and that just makes logical sense because so much is happening early on. If we're talking about social development, if we're talking about brain development, if we're talking about physical changes, if we're talking about, you know, cognitive changes. Um, but it's not like you go to get to, you know, 12 and then your life's over. Actually, we're, we're about to hit a, a very transformative time period in our lives. Right. Obviously, puberty, obviously high school. Okay, so... Those are kind of the two huge thematic backdrops of this chapter. So I think this is an important thing to keep in mind, right? So that for to keep context for this presentation that we're basically talking about high school years and the teenage years and the fact that, you know, psychoanalytic theories, maybe what I'll do is I'll read them and, and sometimes I'll add clarification and sometimes not. I'll kind of try to go with the flow. Psychoanalytic theories identify and clarify major th themes of this social and personality development. Okay, so again, as, as is true with Erickson and Freud, they're kind of looking for, okay, so if we could kind of sum up the essence of this time in life, what is being a teenager and a young adult, adult really about? And at a certain point, it's about this idea of trying to figure out who the heck you are, who you're not, who you're going to date, who you're not going to date. What kind of behaviors you're going to do? What kind of behaviors you're not going to do? Who you're going to associate with? Who you're not going to associate with? This acquiring a sense of who you are as an individual, which in psychology we call identity. Okay, so that's the main topic for today. Identity. What even is identity? What even is this concept that you have of who you are? And why is that understanding that so central to understand the mental health of a teenager? Why is understanding, let's just get hardcore real for a sec. Why is understanding the cutting behavior of a 14 year old girl? Why is it important if you're trying to make sense of that to understand how her social world is interpreting and not interpreting, shaping how she's seeing herself and how the role of media and stuff like that and the role of the sexualized media and the role of female body image and stuff like that. And I know I went off on a random example there, but that's not that random of an example. That's actually a hardcore mainstream example. That's a very common example. 
you know, and, and the male version of that is hating yourself because you think you're small and, you know, taking steroids or doing stuff that has, has really tough effects on your body. It's all body image. As, as teens, they're at this high sensitivity stage for public feedback. Okay, so that rant went all over the place, but I think I'll leave it in. But it's it's all getting back to this idea of who are you is the question today. And who is speaking into that answer? Okay, cultural perspectives derived from other disciplines. Okay, so what this is basically saying is there's ideas about how culture inflects things that come from fields other than psychology. That's what other disciplines mean. Psychology is a discipline. Sociology is a discipline. History is a discipline. Anthropology is a discipline. You sometimes hear people call academic disciplines, academic fields, fields of study. Um, are all interchangeable ideas. Right? So it's basically just saying, well, also culture plays a massive role in this. And that's completely undeniable. Okay, so we're going to be focusing a lot today. I'm going to recheck this, see if the audio is decent. Um, I'm going to try to not self-censor myself on my rants, because every time I hear myself rant, I want to cut it out. But um, if I did all that, I would just be reading the slides. So, you guys, you guys know me already. We're deep into this. This is just the last few presentations, so I'm going to keep being myself and not try to become, you know, just a, a slide reader. Okay. Next slide. Okay, so here on the stage comes, you know, the most misrepresented person maybe in human history. One of them. The great Sigmund Freud. His idea of, of course, he's going to have a, an awkward name for every stage. This is the genital stage, right? And it's pretty easy to see why he would call puberty the genital stage. This is the stage at which um, human beings reach as an organism sexual maturity. Puberty is a crazy time associated with all kinds of obviously physical changes, but what's less talked about is all the correlated emotional and, and social and even cognitive changes associated with it. Okay, but what you're also going to notice is this is the last slide that has Freud's picture on it. That's not actually true because in the dreams presentation it will, but this is the last in this developmental psych one, in this life cycle review. Okay, Freud thought that by the time you were done puberty, a lot of this personality development was stabilized. Now, Freud was one of the smartest people to have ever walked this earth. I don't think for a second Freud would have said that once you're 16, you're that person for the rest of your life. I think he would have said it's way more complicated than that. I do think, though, that his psychosexual model, which is part of his psychoanalytic perspective, was focusing on how we get to maturity. Okay, so I think it's focused on how we get to maturity. It's not saying that we get to maturity and then we're done psychologically. That's First of all, I think that's how some people misinterpret his work. I also think that's completely inconsistent with everything else he says. So that can't be what is meant. Did my defensiveness of Freud come out there? I'm, I, I just get 
incredibly sick of, you know, weekend psychologists dismissing Freud because, I don't know, it's insulting to truth. Okay, next slide. Okay, the next person we're going to talk about is Eric Erickson. And again, like I think, to me, maybe I overhyped this stuff. And maybe maybe people don't care as much as I think that it's important. But I think lineage and who people are matters. And the fact that, like, this is a guy that was going through a lot himself. Maybe when I'm, I'm explaining this, just look at his picture for a sec. He was troubled himself, you know, and, and he went for therapy. This was when, when therapy would have been pretty new, right? And he had psychoanalytic therapy. And not only did it help him feel better, he ended up dedicating his entire life to it. Eric Erickson's an interesting guy. Eric Erickson doesn't even have an undergrad degree from university. Eric Erickson's also lectured at Yale and Harvard. I only know that because I say that on one of the intro slides in like chapter one or something. That'd be a weird thing to just know, but all right. But he's also friends, close friends with Anna Freud, Freud's daughter. It's like, it matters to me that, you know, if everything's flipped, but I'm at the point of Bruce Lee, which is, I guess this way. It matters to me that Bruce Lee's teacher was it, man. Not just some random person. It matters that Erickson's teacher was Freud. P.S. If you don't know what it man means, there's your homework on Netflix. I.P. space man. Ip man. Great, great movie, especially the first one. Awesome old school martial art movie. If you don't like those kind of movies, then definitely don't watch it. But if you're cool like me, you do like it. Just joking. Okay. Maybe I'm, maybe the coffee's starting to work because that's, you know, a good two minutes in and I haven't even made the first point. But Erickson's idea here is that usually in class when I'm on this slide, I take a second to step back and just explain what the word moratorium means. Right? And it's kind of a, a morgue. It's, it's an in-between place. It's this, you're not a kid anymore, but you're not really an adult. But as puberty is going on, you're kind of starting to develop physically like an adult, but you still have emotional reactions that are kind of childish and you're still taking risks that aren't appropriate. Right? We know that the child's, you know, the their impulse control is still low as a teen. That's why we do the dumb stuff we do when we're a teen, right? So Erickson's saying a teenager's in this weird, not a kid, not an adult stage. And so some of it's that. Some of the craziness around who am I? How do I fit in? Who am I supposed to date? Who am I not supposed to date? Who am I going to hang out with? Who am I not going to? Am I going to do drugs? Am I not going to do drugs? Am I going to go to church? Am I not going to go to church? Am I going to do this, this? All this stuff about... It's all happening within this context of these people changing from kids to adults, right? So Erickson thought that was super interesting. That's in some ways one of our biggest transitions 
socially right that's why why it's hard to say that because obviously when you're going from like one to two as a kid you're going from a one-year-old to two-year-old or from zero to one the amount of brain development is so intense right but you compare an apples to oranges different things qualitatively different saying things are qualitatively different it's just a, a more sciencey way of saying you're comparing apples to oranges okay identity versus role confusion so remember erickson the same guy that said like trust versus mistrust autonomy versus shame and guilt here he's saying it's identity against role confusion either you can form a sense of who you are that maybe adapts and changes in different situations of course you're going to be more formal on a job interview less formal when you're out for a beer with your buddies you know a little bit more in your nice clothes when you're on a date and a little bit more relaxed when you're watching a movie at home but you're still sort of the same person and as as you get matured that the connection between those people gets closer and erickson would call that the formation of an identity and if you don't do that he said it's like you're playing roles in all these movies right so when i'm out with my friends i play the role of the person they expect me to be and then when I, my hand gestures in front of the camera all screwed up because i'm seeing the flip but whatever when you're in a job interview you know i'm trying to be the person they want to be when i'm around this friend i'm trying to be like this when i'm around my parents i'm trying to be like this when i'm around my girlfriend i'm trying to be like this when i'm around you know my girlfriend's parents i'm trying to be like this and it's like you're trying to play all these different roles in all these different movies at the same time and it creates role confusion okay sorry i didn't mean for a dramatic pause there but I said that and then I heard my daughter say something that I wondered if you could hear that and again I'll get better at keeping that mental chatter first of all not verbalized and second of all uh maybe I'll just censor it right at the source of impact okay and that's life who are you and can you get any sense of control over this self your identity or are you constantly flipping hats as you switch from run one role to the next causing mass confusion and stress and a state of anxiety to dismiss guys like freud and erickson is i don't know i would call it a rookie move and just just as a quick review of what we've been looking at with our, in terms of Ericsson. So remember, so now we're at the we're at the yellow, but we started at the blue. Right? We started at the trust versus mistrust. And how the little the child's trying to develop a sense of, you know, can I trust this world or or sh does it make sense for me to be inherently cynical? Because it does make sense for you to be inherently cynical if you are literally in a world that's against you. If you're in a world where you can't trust things, you shouldn't trust things. Developing a sense of mistrust if you're in an environment that wasn't giving signals of trust is an accurate, well, in Erickson's words, psychosocial development. It's a fix. It's a it's a crisis. I almost said fixation, but that's more of a Freud word. Although it would have still been relevant. Then when the child gets in this two to three, like my kid's age, it's this 
autonomy versus shame or self-doubt. Right? So it's like, Ebby wants to do everything herself. Right? The other day I went to carry her up the steps. Big girls don't get carried. Right? So it's, that's an interesting sentence because within that, I keep looking here, but within that sentence, it's basic. She's basically saying like, I've learned what big girls are supposed to be. What you just said doesn't fit into that model. It doesn't fit that schema. Okay, so by the time they're four or five, now they're at this stage of initiative versus guilt. So now they're at school and it's important that they feel like what they're doing is actually, you know, that they can affect their environment. They can say things and people respond to them. As they get to 6 to 11, they start to develop this sense of industry, the sense of, you know, I can focus on a task and complete it. Right? And if people have a lot of uh, drama during those kind of late early school years or like late um, grade school years, like grades 4, 5, 6, 7. It can, it can lead to these feelings of what Erickson called inferiority. Now you sometimes hear inferiority complex. Actually, Erickson's term was inferiority crisis. I think the, the idea of an inferiority complex comes later. Well, think about even what the word a complex would mean. That's a kind of dated language, but that like... A complex is almost like it's such a complicated psychological, it's almost trying to say that it's best understood as an energetic. Complexity of energy, right? Because it's like, it's just trying to explain like, okay, so say you have a really bad memory that affects how you, um, say you, you go to the store and you see somebody and that person reminds you of someone that you really hate and you have this really intense almost flashback caused by this other person that's not the person to say that that like triggered almost a live part of your brain it's like remember these guys the idea of a complex is is maybe sloppy language but All you would be doing to correct that is using more specific language. It's not like that whole idea is complete BS. We have complexes. Whether you dislike that term or not, whatever. As we get into teenagers like today, we're talking about this identity versus confusion. That's going to be my whole point today. And then next week, or not next week, I'll probably maybe even do it later today or tomorrow. I have it ready to record, which basically just means I made all these image QRs so that hopefully people don't get hurt feelings about their images in here. And then um, I shift everything a bit to the left so I can fit this pretty face in the corner. Okay, and then uh, next time, so sorry, next time we're going to, that's a dumb rant, but next time we're going to be doing intimacy and isolation. And then we'll be ending with generativity. Right? And then I made the point before that if there's the interest, I will do um, a couple follow-up presentations in this class. 
one on integrity versus despair and then the dreams and then also maybe death dying and bereavement if people want that want that presented on okay so for my students following along with this i was just thinking you might want to just do it a normal way Right, like obviously this is a video obviously you could just sit back and watch it if that works for you that's cool i'm also going to turn it into a podcast so my intention with that is i'm gonna try to do this as if looking at the screen will be helpful but you could theoretically ingest this as a podcast is basically what i'm saying and so um in case you're super busy and you need to be watching this while you're doing dishes and with one earphone in while you're trying to keep the kids from painting on the walls or whatever they're doing. Um, having said that, if you follow along with a notepad and you write these points down, it'll be more engaging. You'll uh, remember more and the time will go faster. So remember the higher the level of the engagement, the, the quicker it seems. So sitting there like this is always the, the best way to make things feel long. Erickson's point here is really important. And it's why I why I highlight the word unglued here. Right, because he's saying with this identity crisis, this is the psychological state of emotional turmoil. So when our emotions feel like in a state of turmoil, crazy, that arises when, not crazy, uh, intense and dramatic and excited that arises when an adolescent's sense of self becomes unglued. You know, that's interesting language. What would it mean for your sense of who you are to become unglued? Challenging some of your thoughts you thought you had about yourself, who you thought you were, who you thought you weren't, what you thought you did, what you thought you didn't do. But that that ungluing is actually a key part of maturation. It's a key part of becoming more mature later. You can't you can't just be that same person. And don't think for a second this isn't completely applicable to you just because you're 25 or 35 or 55 or 85. Right? And Erickson's ideas are that these concepts highlight most intensely kind of at certain ages but it's not like identity isn't something like identity is something that's significant for everyone just like trust is but the point i really want to highlight here is how central this idea of being unglued is and how important that is to being put back together better you have to be tested. And I almost wish we talked about it with that language more. Ancient cultures did. That's what that whole idea of rites of passages is. We just kind of throw kids in high school and then get weirded out that they have weird behavior. It's like, of course they do. What an insane time of life. 
you know, they're growing into themselves physically, sexually, psychologically, emotionally, relationally. They're in the most socially congested time of their life. They're being blasted by media about how they're worthless. You know. It's uh, it's not necessarily a formula for long-term prospering. I think looking at some of this stuff and talking with our young people and presenting this more as a heroic challenge than is just, I don't know, maybe I think that's maybe part of what needs to change is attacking and trying to find meaning and purpose in it. But then the other part of it is when you're when you're 17, you don't want to hear that. That doesn't make any sense at 17. Who cares? And some of that, it's not like they're bad people. Some of that you can explain away with just looking at brain scans. Some of that's just their their tolerance for threat is way higher. Right? It's like I'm almost 40. I got a wife and kid and bills and the amount of th risk I'm willing to take is pretty low. Like uh, unnecessary risk. Especially compared to when I was like 17. Okay, next slide. So here's a neat one. James Marcia. So if you're taking notes, definitely have this guy in your notes. He's uh, kind of, a, well, he's a key voice in this whole realm of identity. His term is identity achievement. This is one of these words that I like this guy's idea. I don't know if I love that word, though, because it implies almost it almost suggests that it's always a positive. Because right? you could achieve the identity of a drug addict or you could achieve the identity of a consistent liar. OK, so. Or you could achieve the identity of a hero. Or you could achieve the identity of a mother who fights for her kids. Okay, so he's saying that who you are is actually a result of a whole bunch of choices. And a whole bunch of situational dynamics. And not always straight up choices, but a whole bunch of things. Okay, and sorry, I'll try not to do these forward leans and spray it. I'm just like blinding myself with that I got that crazy you know right here if I was on like a professional news studio they'd probably put some makeup there or something or change where that light is who cares though right um because that's why I disabled the comments don't have to listen to people talk about my uh beautiful skull so anyways uh again I should probably edit that kind of stuff out, but Marcia says that an adolescent's identity formation has basically two parts, a crisis and a commitment. You're put in a situation that you haven't been in before. A crisis. You're at a party with a bunch of your friends and 
someone pulls out cocaine and you've never done it before and everybody else there seems to be cool with it and everyone else there seems to do it so you excuse yourself and you say you guys are gonna go, go take a leak and you go to the bathroom and now you're in the bathroom by yourself and you're having a little mini panic attack because you don't know what to do you want them to like you you want them to be your friends but you don't want to do cocaine James Marcia would say you are currently in a crisis, an identity crisis. Okay, and I'm going to continue with that example to explain the words on the next slide. Okay, so he's like, basically, this is the idea. He's saying that there's that crisis like that situation I just said. Now you're in a position where you need to make a commitment. Or not. So what do you do? Do you decide I am someone that does this now? Do you decide I'm, I'm still not someone that does this? Do you not decide? So what I'm about to do here, just like parenting styles and just like uh, attachment styles and stuff, these are these two factors. And now I'm going to show four different stages you could be in this. But it's all just is, was there a crisis? Was there a commitment? This one had a crisis. This one didn't have a commitment. So those are the two variables. Okay. So again, if, you, if you're my long-term student here, you know what I'm saying, what I'm saying. It's kind of like the parenting styles idea or the attachment styles. Remember attachment, it was like, is there, um, well, there's just like these specific factors. Parenting styles is an easier example because parenting, it was just like, is there warmth and is there clear rules? Here is, is there a crisis and is there a commitment? Okay, so let's go back to that scenario for a sec. I hope that all worked because I realized I had a, that last slide I did. And then between that and this, I had another slide that had an image, but I wanted to move it. I wanted to do this slide, the next slide, and then have the image. So I just like in the moment switched the order. Anyways, I didn't have to say that, but I hope it didn't mess up the video. Okay. So you're back in that bathroom. Let's use that. Let's keep using that example because, you know, switch the drug, switch the scenario a little bit. And that's something that's happened to a lot of people. And maybe you decide you are going to do the drug. You're like, well, yes, I am going to do it. Or maybe you decide you're not going to. And you're going to stay someone that doesn't do that. My point is that. From a strictly identity achievement perspective, it almost, not that it doesn't matter, but either one of those answers would be considered identity achievement. So identity achievement refers to a situation where you've been put in that crisis and you've made a choice. It doesn't take into account necessarily whether that choice is a positive or negative one. not being not using the drug or using the drug if you make a strong choice on that the person's been through a crisis and has reached a commitment so basically have you been put in the situation and made a decision and if the answer is yes then we'd say then that's part of your identity achievement either you've solidified that you're someone still that doesn't do that or you've introduced a new thing into your identity because so much of your identity is what you see yourself doing Right, where this is something that we don't often think about, but we're constantly 
witnessing ourselves. Right. And a lot of the literature around identity is that that's where a lot of, you know, I'm, ta- I'm not talking about, I'm talking about real identity. I'm talking about not kind of current conversations. I'm talking about what psychology teaches identity actually is. And what it actually is, is that we're witnessing ourselves throughout our entire life and we're seeing who we are. And it's related to the words we're using. It's related to the things we're doing. It's related to how we interact with people. There is, of course, a social element to that. Part of it is how we see others responding to us. The guy's name slipping in my head, but Peter's, it's either his last name. I think the guy's last name, it's Jan Stetson Peters or something. I forget what the guys, the two psychologists that are huge in the field of, of identity research. Not to self-plug, but if you look up a master's thesis, you'd find it right away. Um, I think the guy's last name is Peters. A lot of my master's thesis dealt with personal identity and how that's different than social identity. Um, and how it's actually a more robust concept. It's more, uh, there's more weight to the idea scientifically of personal identity than social identity. Depending on phrasing, that could be a controversial topic, but basically all I'm saying is that, yes, you are partially what you see other people seeing you as, but you're way more what you see yourself as being. So then, that's a side rant. Um, so then some of the, some, maybe you're still in that bathroom and maybe you're undecided. And maybe you don't know if you want to do the drug. You don't want to, you know, your parents don't want you to, you know, you have certain friends that would encourage you not to, if they were there, but you also feel pressure. Maybe one of the people in the other room wanting you to do it is your boyfriend or girlfriend or new friends. So he would say moratorium now is for that person that is still in the bathroom. It's the identity status of a person who's been in crisis. So that guy or girl has had the drug offered. Their friends are still waiting for them to answer. They've excused themselves to use the washroom to buy themselves some time to panic. But at this point, they've made no commitment. So again, we're using this word moratorium. Before we use moratorium to mean between kid and adult. Now we're using it to mean between you know, somebody that's made a choice and someone that hasn't yet. It's that in between has not made a choice yet. So if you were comparing these two, you'd say identity achievement, there's been a crisis and there's been a commitment. Okay, Lindsay, so put that in your note. No, I'm just joking. But so an identity achievement is crisis. There is a crisis and there isn't a uh, commitment for moratorium. There is a crisis, but there's no commitment. They're both in the same situation. One's just made it. The top one's made a choice. The bottom one hasn't. Okay, so there's two other 
potential situations. So the other one is called foreclosure. Now, for foreclosure, I want to kind of switch examples. Okay, so the drug example worked really good for the first two. Let's say you grow up, and as you're growing up, you grow up in a Roman Catholic family. Okay, and your your family's very Christian, very Roman Catholic, and you um, it's an important part of your life. And as you get older, you meet a you meet a girl or a guy or whatever, and they're the same faith, and their whole family's the same faith. And you decide to get married, and everything's cool because you're all the same faith. We wouldn't say that you see that's a situation where you've made a commitment, so the commitment might be to the religion, but there was never a crisis point. Now that could be a very different scenario. So say say that same beginning for you. But then all of a sudden you meet a girl or a guy that's from a completely different religion. And in their religion, you have to be the same religion to get married. And now you're in this crisis of what am I? Right. But his idea here is sometimes with foreclosure, the identity status is of a person has the person's made the commitment. They're of this faith and they've never really been crisis on it. <coughs> foreclosure means it's done before it starts. So in your notes, you could put here, there is a commitment, but there is no crisis. This is the person that says that they would never do drugs, but has also never been offered drugs in a situation that had peer pressure. Identity diffusion. Say somebody that uh, grew up in a family that wasn't religious, they're not religious. Their boyfriend or girlfriend's not religious. Religion's not a big part of their life. Their identity around religion would be very diffuse. would be like if I just spilled this coffee on the floor and it just kind of spread out. It's not very specific. The identity status of a person who's not in the midst of a crisis and has made no commitment. Okay, so again, if you're if you're following along with notes for foreclosure, there, it's there is a commitment, but no crisis, and then identity diffusion. There's neither, no commitment, no crisis. And it's this idea that. Actually, the formation of our identity is actually, that's just a label we make up for this fact that as we go through life, we go through all these situations and we make all these minor choices about what we are and what we do and that we see ourselves doing it. And who's seeing you? What do I even mean when I'm saying that? I'm saying like maybe that our unconscious is watching our conscious. Or am I just saying that our whole thing is embodied. Our whole psychosocial, spiritual, emotional, relational being. Next slide. Okay, so this is the image slide that I pushed back a bit because I think it'll make more sense at this point. So now if you look at this like this, 
you'll see kind of so the the horizontal axis is saying like has there been a commitment or not no or yes and then the vertical axis like has there been a crisis or not and you see how the four kind of fit on that so i'll just let that sit for a sec so you can just visually look and for those of you listening as a podcast it's just a a quick little uh venn diagram or whatever that just shows that achievement is when you have a crisis and commitment that foreclosure is when you have no crisis but with a commitment moratoriums neither i mean sorry moratoriums no commitment but with a crisis and then identity diffusion is um no crisis no commitment so one of the big things we're going to be talking about today is how as the you know as the teenager gets a bit older their thinking gets a lot more abstract and that abstract thinking is actually a sign of of more intelligence they're less well this is this because of this they're more like well it depends on situational context and as soon as you get to that point of and i'm not saying everything's relational but that ability to see abstract nuance is uh, sorry I, I don't know if you can hear or not my daughter's like singing frozen or something upstairs um but it's a sign of of deepening complexity their, their thinking is getting they're getting more um well it's a sign of cognitive development they're getting smarter they're getting more flexible flexible in their thinking that's the way i should say it so then this uh slick little graph from the textbook kind of shows so if you look up at the side there it says percentage of respondents who use a category of self-definition at least once so we go and ask a bunch of these teenagers you know who are you and how would you define them yourself right so it's like what do they say to that question do they say uh i'm kind of fat i have hair that's blonde i uh you know i'm tall i'm short are they using that was such a i should have thought of what i was going to say in advance but it's like very physical reference to image or physical characteristics and you see that as they get older it goes down you ask a bunch of 10 year olds almost all of them are going to talk about that kind of stuff about height and weight and hair color and speed and physical things as kids get older though their answers tend to shift towards more political or ideological things Right, ideological would be like oh i believe in certain ideas or truth or i'm a fair person or right, but notice how that's the shift from what do i look like to who i am in here okay so as this teenager is getting older we see You know this comparison point so the first point on the slide says that academic self-concepts come from internal comparisons and external comparisons and one of the things i'm going to be focusing on here is how the teenage years unlike any other time in life were heavily influenced by how we think we compare to the people directly around us right i'm cool because you know in this group of 16 people I'm the third coolest and that's pretty cool 
right? And that actually a lot of how we make sense of ourselves is actually coming from how we see ourselves comparatively. And that matters because that second point is a little one, but maybe the most important point in this course, that how we see ourselves socially is actually predictive of our behavior. How you see yourself is predictive of your behavior. If you see yourself as like a worthless, undeserving nothing, you'll act like that. If you see yourself as a person of integrity and of value who's maybe had struggles in their life and maybe even done things they don't like, but that's adapting to becoming a, a, a good person and trying to be of integrity and trying to work hard and trying to be a warrior and trying to be disciplined, then that'll affect your behavior. You know, and when I say appearance less important in later adolescence, I don't mean that 18 year olds don't care about how they look, but what I mean is 15 year olds care more. So self-esteem is a tricky concept. It's come under fire a bit lately. Um, it was huge in the 80s, 80s and 90s. And the idea was that we need to build up kids. And I think I think there was a lot of good intention around that. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I do, however, question when somebody's in a position where they know things are wrong in their life. And they know they need to get better. Telling them to that they're perfect how they currently are might not be an authentic message. Not that they're not valuable. And I think that's the big distinction. It's like, no matter how much you feel like your life's out of sync right now, you're a valuable, important person. But to say that you should just stay exactly how you are. There's a piece of that that's inauthentic. You should get stronger. You should get healthier. You should get more disciplined in how you think. You should create more healthy relationships for yourself. Just like I should. Just like everybody should. And um, you know, maybe there's some costs of praising everybody where they're at. Accepting everyone where they're at. And, and again, so see, that's kind of where the argument is. Okay, so I can kind of see both sides of it. Um, yeah, so you guys, it's weird that you guys don't have any questions on any of this. Um, I feel like there'd be questions on this slide if this was in person. And uh, yeah, on that note, we're doing Zoom this Friday. So if you do have questions, uh, prepare them for there. Or, you know, if it's super complicated and you want to give me a bit of a heads up, that's cool. But... If it's related to this, just you can just save it for the, the session and uh, just uh, make sure that I let I um, remember to ask for those questions. OK, anyways. Overall, self-esteem tends to rise throughout adolescence, and I think that's some good news. Um, self-esteem and. I think I'm going to get into this on the next slide, but self-esteem is an interesting thing because it's manipulatable and it's adaptable or, or I should say malleable. If you could just cut out those two words before it, my two swings, I hit it with the third swing. Um, malleable means that it changes. Now that can be a good or a bad thing because somebody's self-esteem can also be destroyed, right? But it can also be built. So the ability of the human mind to 
heal. You know, it's one of the most interesting things in the universe. Okay, next slide. We do know, though, is that self-esteem does show some use as a predictive concept in terms of school scores. So if you have the self-esteem, so if you did a self-esteem questionnaire with a bunch of students and you had their scores, it does seem to be associated with things like grades. So again, my critique of self-esteem as a, as a psychometric is kind of a side. I'm not disputing the actual concept, really. Of course, how you see yourself, my whole point a couple slides ago was how you see yourself shapes your behavior. So it makes sense to think that if you see yourself as somebody that's good and valuable and smart and athletic and that that would be associated with better outcomes than if you are constantly critical and negative to you, to and about yourself. High self-esteem self is associated with positive developmental outcomes. This next point says boys are more likely than girls to have either continuously high self-esteem or rising self-esteem during adolescence. I'll take a sip of coffee because I know Becca and Lindsay have no questions about that one. Ah, that's a joke, guys. Just trying to lighten the mood. Carlos, do you got any questions? No. Just bring them Friday, guys. Um... biggest target of our advertising is teenage girls never let that point slip you there's uh criminals too strong a word but there's a lot of industry focused on making young girls feel insecure because young girls buy a lot of products I think I'm right still in saying that it's still the single highest targeted marketing group. You guys want to hear some really interesting stuff about that? So a guy named Edward Bernays is someone you should look into. He wrote a book called Propaganda, and uh, he's one of the most important psychologists that nobody knows about. He's actually the direct nephew of Freud. He's Sigmund Freud's nephew. He was in America. He was one of the main people responsible for bringing Freud to America late in Freud's life. Freud didn't want to come. Freud, by the time Freud came and did some of his lectures in America, remember he was in advanced age. He had smoked cigars his whole life, had terrible jaw cancer. He had like a fake lower jaw that he had that was hurt when it was in. It hurt when he took it out. It hurt when he put it in. You know, it says that in one of the videos that I show. Freud had a rough last few years. So anyways, you guys are like, where'd that go? Well, I was talking about Freud is because Eric Bernays, his, his nephew, right, had a huge impact on Madison Avenue in this idea of like how to use psychoanalytic ideas, you know, to create Mad Men, if you watch that show, you know, to create advertising and marketing. I've never actually seen Mad Men, but I feel like I would like it and I feel like I kind of get what it's about. It's about that early... New York, Madison Avenue, the beginning of advertising and product promotion and this idea of like, you know, you don't sell the bed, you sell the good night's sleep. It's like, yep. 
I just, I don't know how uh, long this is going to be. This might be epic. I'm only on side 18 of 52, and we're rolling in on an hour, so maybe I'll try to speed up, or maybe maybe you guys are like, no, just do your thing. I'm going to hear, I'm going to pretend that that's what you said. Okay, so influences on self-esteem. Where do we start? All right, physical appearance. So a lot of these are self-related. Physical state, mental ability, psychological state, personal attributes, aspirations, others, basically how you see yourself. Your relationships affect your self-esteem. Obviously your parents, siblings, friends, family, boyfriend, girlfriend, teachers. One thing that I really believe in is that the best way to improve people's self-esteem is to give them experiences of success. To be completely honest, it's part of the rationale behind the program you're in right now. Is that maybe you had a rough time in high school and started to think of yourself as a weak student. And I could talk all day about how that is context specific. And maybe that was a reflection of you in that moment, but not necessarily now. But there's only so much I can say. Seeing yourself get an A on a paper is going to have a much bigger effect because you're starting to prove to yourself, right? There's there's nothing that improves self-esteem more than actual experiences of success. Okay, so again, it's also related that reading Marx just threw me on that loop. Marx, homework, school, your exercise, your eating, uh, relaxing, beer, your sexual life, your entertainment, arts, going out, your hobbies, shopping, uh, that says drugs and alcohol, right, your your work situation, you know, your experience, it's, it's basically what it's saying is like, if, if, if you don't feel like you have satisfying work or social life or you're negative about yourself, it's like all these things are influencing your kind of general sense of how you see yourself. And maybe you do need to improve on things. And that's okay. And that's, there can be something more human. You know, I think, I think it's about balancing brutal honesty with compassion. If you're really talking about psychological growth, that's the thing. It's like, this isn't Hansel and Gretel. We're not just feeding you sweets to fatten you up for the slaughter. It's like if we're actually trying to sharpen your sword and turn you into disciplined thinkers, there's some some hard truths and some deep personal reflection associated with that. Next slide. Next slide productions. Okay, so this is a this is a classic next slide. So this is uh from a guy named uh Cooley Mead's his last name. I want to say James Cooley Mead. Oh, great. My daughter has the flute out upstairs, so that should be... If you're catching a little bit of flute play, a little bit of, uh, you know, air instruments. But uh, hopefully you're not hearing that, and then that just is unnecessarily uh, extra. You know, I may as well keep adding to this. We're only at 55 minutes already. Anyways, Looking Glass Self, James Cooley Mead is the guy's name, okay, and uh, I might be wrong with his first name, but who cares, Cooley Mead, an important sociologist from the University of 
Chicago, which is a major school of sociology. Uh, I think he was a direct student of Hubert Bloomer, who is Herbert Bloomer's like a huge name in, in uh, sociology. The School of Chicago is very well known for sociology and for specific types of research. Remember, sociology is not that old of a discipline, right? So it's like philosophy. I'm talking about the ancient Greeks. Sociology, we're talking about people from Chicago. It's You can tell just by that that nothing against Chicago, just we're only talking about 100, 150 years. So you guys are saying enough already, so explain the slide. So the looking glass self is this idea of like some of how we see ourselves is kind of a reflection of how we see other people seeing us. You know, my parents see me like this and my girlfriend sees me like this and my older brother sees me like this and my ex sees me like this and I must be like kind of some hybrid of all those opinions of me. That is not true, by the way. There's something very different than your your social identity. And that's why I challenge that concept. You're not you're not even your personal identity. Yourself is more than that. You know, and if you want to call yourself or your spirit or your soul or your witness or your the part of you that's not just your brain processing, that's not just your physical body, that's not just your emotions that we all know is something, but we struggle since the beginning of time labeling it. It's not this. This is a, a persona layer on top of that. The true self is not the self that the ego has tricked you into believing in. That's a butchered Michael Tessarian quote, but it's a good one. I need a soundboard. Next slide. You guys will find this piece interesting. So in psychology, there's in developmental psych, they talk about this idea of ethnic identity. And what it refers to is, so say... Um, Instead of using the common example of like somebody that comes here from somewhere else, let, I want to use myself as the example and put myself somewhere else. So a lot of my students are from India and China and places like that, and especially India. And so say if I went to India, right? So say if when I was a teenager, I went to India when I was 12 to go to school. Now, if that happened, I would be going through all the same things that my friends would be going through back in Canada, like in terms of I'd be going through puberty, I'd be maybe starting to be to be attracted to people, you know, I'm, I'm starting to physically change, but I'm also doing it in an environment that's new and in an environment where the people around me might be different. And I'm not talking about like surface things like skin color, I'm talking about like in behavior patterns and in how they see things and how their parents interact with them and all these um, things that we take for granted until we're in a situation where it's different and then it's completely noticeable that it's different. So what this the, what the literature talks about is how these teenagers have a second challenge. So they have the same identity development challenge while at the same time they have this ethnic identity or cultural identity piece. 
and I'm going to go for this for a few slides because I think this is a neat idea that I don't want to brush over because it, it makes more sense, I think, when we get deep into it. So like other teens, they must develop a sense of individual identity that they believe sets them apart from others. So what that means is just like everybody, because they're a human being like everybody else is, I, if I'm in India, I'm just a normal person. I'm still trying to figure out who I am and who I'm going to be and if I'm going to date people and whatever. Okay, and then there's a, but they also coming on the next slide. Okay. Okay, but in addition to all that, they must then also develop an ethnic identity that includes self-identification as a member of their specific group, commitment to that group and its attitudes and values and some attitudes, either positive or negative, that the group, uh, about the group to which they belong. Right, so they... they're being kind of pressured to develop identity on two levels, one at a cultural level that people within the culture do also, but it's at such a widespread mainstream level that we just assume it's normal life. Me and my buddies growing up in Kitchener weren't aware of how we were being shaped by Canadian culture because it was all we had, not all we had, but it was, it's like asking a fish what water is. Now, to somebody not from here, they would have noticed everything. Oh, we, we use wor weird words when we greet each other. We, we eat different, unique foods. We sit weird ways. We greet each other weirdly. It's like, well, none of it's weird. All of it is just context specific. And then also sometimes for these teens, the, the process of developing the ethnic identity can be at variance with the dominant culture. So an easy way to think about this would be something like religion, right? So if you're from a culture where it's very strict in, and very religious, and then you move to a society like Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, where not that it's not religious, but where there's a diversity of opinion that's encouraged actually, at least theoretically. And it's like, so then life at home and, and life in society is very different. I'm going to maybe have to go upstairs after I finish this slide and try to do a bait and switch and get Evie playing with a different toy because that, that flute's bugging me and I think that it can you guys can hear it. Um, whatever, she's a little kid. She's just trying to have fun. She's trying to not go crazy during this quarantine too. Right, but that some of the stress comes from that lack of synchronicity between at home and at school. Okay, so I got Evie doing something different, so that uh, flute sound should be done now. So I'll keep going with this because I think if this is an important point with ethnic identity tends to strengthen with age and uh, progress through phases. What that means is for the little kids, they, they tend not to notice as much, right? They're just kids. It's like Evie, like Evie plays, would play, well, theoretically, if it was in a different scenario where she could play with kids, she's desperate to play with kids right now. And things like race like, would have, wouldn't even cross her mind. Younger children tend not to pay much attention or have much interest in ethnic identity at all. However, there seems to become a point when they become acutely aware of the gulf. Right? Gulf means like the distance between point A and point B. 
and you start to become aware of the fact that like life at home and life at school is different. People think different things. They talk different things. They're allowed to say different things. Right. And then the good news is, is that usually most kids, by the time they get later in their teens, kind of have worked through that. So again, it's, I think the best way to think about it is it's basically saying if you're growing up in a, if you're going through your teen years in a culture that you didn't grow up in, there's an additional layer to identity development. It's the same plus a bit. And that that's not just, I think in Canada, we tend to think of people that have come here and how it affects them. But the point I'm trying to make here is it would be just the same if you went there. It's related to this idea of going through this key transformational transformational process, not in your the land where you developed your foundational base of those early years, culturally. So that's a ethnic identity is an interesting concept in psychology. So the idea or the term in psychology, and this is one that will probably be on the test, is bicultural identity. Okay, so this idea by meaning to of being identified with more than one culture. So it'd be like if I use that example of me moving to India, maybe I go in and live there for 10 years and I really identify with that culture, but I also still identify with Canada. So it's like Canadian and Indian. And some of my Indian students probably do feel Canadian and Indian. So that we would call that a bicultural identity. And that that actually, when that's in a healthy way, that that actually can really contribute and add depth and value to people's lives. Adolescents who form a combined identity based on strong identification and participation in both their own culture and the larger culture have the highest self-esteem and best outcomes out of, out of uh, people in this situation. So if you take of all the people in this situation where they're basically going through their teenage years in a country that they didn't grow up in, the ones that do the best job at developing what's called a bicultural identity tend to have the highest self-esteem and all these other outcomes. So that's kind of neat. So it shows that that's actually uh, a, relevant, a relevant predictive variable in terms of performance outcomes. So it's scientifically or statistically uh, relevant, not just an interesting point. Okay, so on our Zoom last, last our last Zoom on Friday, you guys had Lindsay had brought up this idea of locus of control and what it meant. And again, the the best way to contextualize and make sense of this is to just attack that word locus. Okay, that's what makes it confusing. All if you, in your mind, just make that, say, location of control. Where's the control in your life coming from? You know, is it the outside world that is dictating your life? And are you just a victim to that? Right? My picture is kind of over the word external. Is it external? Is it outside? Or do you see your life as, of course, there's things that are outside of your control, but that a lot of what happens in your life is, you know, the behaviors and the actions and the habits and the patterns that you form and that you control your destiny. 
and we would call that an internal locus of control. All right, and what you're going to see over the next few slides is that an internal locus of control is associated with all kinds of positive psychological outcomes and that, that as we mature and grow more disciplined, we're pushing towards developing a more internal locus of control. I'm less taking what all these people over here say as why I think things. I'm getting more and more align. That's interesting. More and more align. It's a flip camera. Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee behind me, man, and when I came together like this, just made me think of him, and that's basically the stance he's in, right? And it's like, why did, this is a massive side rant that I'll do in 20 seconds, but maybe a whole future podcast. Why did Bruce Lee fascinate my generation? Why did Bruce Lee fascinate people in the 90s? First of all, before Bruce Lee, I'd never seen someone do like a jump spin kick. The first time I saw someone do a jump spin kick, I almost fell out of my chair. Actually, to be honest, the first guy, another guy up there that is Van Damme. But anyways, that's a whole other story. But Bruce Lee, the reason, one of the reasons why people loved him is he was this super athlete, but he was also a very deep thinker and a philosopher. And he talked about like, if you're, if you're nowadays, if you listen to like the Jocko podcast or Jocko uh, Wilnick's like a retired Navy SEAL awesome awesome motivational speaker awesome awesome podcaster and i am sure he would be a bruce lee fan I, I don't know but i'm sure and uh but this idea of ownership and responsibility and taking control and even when things suck and even when things aren't fair and that it's not about if it's fair it's about how do you get through the situation a guy like Jocko Wilnick is completely preaching the benefits of an internal locus of control. He's just using uh, his context-specific language. He's using military kind of motivational language, which is, again, he's one of my favorite podcasters, so I like what he does. But his, I think it's called just the Jocko podcast. And, you know, it's it's... If you, I don't know. I don't know what to say. If you don't find the insights of a of a of a real Navy SEAL trainer interesting, then then I don't know. Uh, then we then we would like different kinds of podcasts. Okay, next slide. That got ranty. So people that would score high on next. So okay. So again, think about this as like a, a scale. So say. Uh, say it's zero to a hundred or whatever and on zero we put extreme external locus of control and at a hundred we put extreme internal locus of control okay and it's like because it's not like you're one or the other it's that you're somewhere on there and as we get more mentally healthy my point is that we're pulling in in general we're pulling towards the internal side okay this external locus of control so this is saying People that would score high in believing that other people are controlling their destiny. And sometimes we get into these mindsets, but I mean, when this becomes the dominant way of thinking that others are controlling me, I'm a victim to this world, that it's happening to me, right? When they start to attribute, you know, you failed the test because the teacher's mean and because 
the system and because of this and, and, and not taking any, it's the opposite of taking personal ownership and responsibility. It's the opposite psychological state of that. Attributing the causes of experiences to factors outside of your, him or herself. Right? I failed because Mike made a dumb test or because the bashers is mean. Right? Not because instead of saying I should have been more prepared, which is the discipline ownership's perspective. All right. People who score high on this is associated with procrastinating, poor academic performance, probably obviously. It's awfully often a company's low self-esteem. Okay, people that score high on an external locus of control also tend to score low on self-esteem. Uh, it's associated with introversion, which is interesting. That almost demands a, a whole ramp, but and then neuroticism. I think that's easy to understand, right? So the neuroticism or the tendency towards uh, negative emotion. To, if you view the world as against you, that's obviously that thought in itself is filled with negative emotion. So then in contrast, an internal locus of control is well basically a belief that, that you it's it's the authority and responsibility and ownership perspective i said authority i meant to say um responsibility ownership ownership not authority but it's taking ownership over your experience right it's like again i should just restart this slide but whatever i'm an hour and 13 minutes in if you're still watching you can You'll forgive that hiccup. Um, so an internal locus of control is just this idea of like, it's actually, I have some of the, I guess authority was the right word, personal authority. I don't have to ask you for my opinion. I don't have to ask you for how I'm allowed to behave or what I'm allowed to consume or who I'm allowed to talk to or what words I'm allowed to say with my mouth or think in my brain. I actually have agency. I have control over my destiny. A belief in personal variables such as, you know, effort and ability as being responsible for outcomes. Maybe the person that did better in the class, it wasn't just an unfair favoritism. Maybe they actually worked harder and maybe they, uh, you know, proofread their thing more and got someone else to and maybe they, their references were better. And maybe their paragraph structure was tighter and maybe they had a more specific thesis. Maybe it was ability and effort related. Again, my, one of my points I'm trying to make is it doesn't at a certain level even matter what's real. An internal locus of control mindset is linked with success. Even if the world is harsh taking ownership and responsive, even if you've, again, this is where I want to be very careful because what I'm not saying is even if you've been in a scenario as a victim to take ownership, that's not what I'm saying. Because some things that happen in life are truly evil. What I am saying is that starting now, you have to take ownership and that taking ownership 
and taking in the terms of Jocko, who I mentioned before his podcast, his book is called Extreme Ownership. Again, it's like, what are we talking about? Are we, are we, is this Hansel and Gretel and we just want to have sweets? Or are we talking about actual psychological growth and extreme ownership? A belief in personal variables, such as ability and effort being responsible for outcomes. Right? People that score high in this complete tasks and succeed in school tend to have more optimistic outlooks. It's the opposite of, of nihilism, right? That things do matter. It's, you know, it's the Viktor Frankl. It's like the meaning of life is to find how to have a meaningful life, how to embed meaning in your experience, how to do things that matter. So to kind of sum that up, when an external locus of control is combined with low self-esteem, introversion and neuroticism, teens and adults have an increased likelihood of poor social and emotional outcomes. The science is painfully clear. Whether you have reason to feel like the world's against you or not, having that as your life philosophy is associated with nothing but negativity. I think the psychological literature is clear on the side against nihilism. I don't know what else to say about that. I think nihilism is a cancerous philosophy. I think it makes sense. And I think it's a cancerous philosophy. Okay, and that brings us to kind of the, a, a next part of this presentation. So I'm kind of done that section. And now I want to talk about moral development. And think of morals as morals is good and bad, good, good, uh, good and evil, right and wrong, good and bad. That's what I was going to say, right? So uh, Lawrence Kohlberg, so he's looking at this idea of how people decide what's right or wrong and how as a pe person gets older how they answer questions like around morality like around is stealing ever justified how that can change based on how old the kid is okay and how your morals and your in Kohlberg's words your morals are basically just your moral reasoning is the thought process that's going on in your head when you're deciding whether something, when I'm asking you, is this good or bad? The thinking that you're using and the rationale that you're using to say your decision is moral reasoning. Okay, theories of moral reasoning have been important in explanations of adolescent social, antisocial behavior. So why adolescents do some of the things they do. Maybe they're conceptualizing of the morality of the situation is different. Maybe stealing, which they know is bad, is almost justifiable because of the social bonding it creates within the gang, right? I'm just trying to think of a scenario where the, the 
social peer pressure benefit at an individual level for the person might outweigh the negative social stigma of doing something known to be bad. I think you see that in gang behavior on a million levels. Okay. So Kohlberg had a kind of interesting idea, and his idea was basically, I'll tell kids a story. I'll give you a situation, and I'll ask you what you think the person should do. Right, because the idea is it's not to ask people if they're good or bad. It's to put them in a situation, make them make a decision, and then imply from that decision. Kohlberg pioneered the practice of assessing moral reasoning, right, that process of is it right or wrong, by presenting a subject, a kid, with a series of dilemmas or stories, and or a dilemma in a story format, like dilemma should you or shouldn't you, each highlighting a specific moral issue, such as the value of human life, I think the next slide is the example, so we'll just keep going. So here we go. Welcome to Kohlberg's famous Heinz's Dilemma. I have a video I often show here, but since YouTube audio scrapes all their files, and since that would get this pulled down, and since this is almost an hour and a half already, and I still have 20 more slides, and I would like this not to get pulled down, I'm going to tell you this story. This guy has a wife, okay, and I'm going to try to present this as good as I can. I usually do this while pacing around the classroom, but I'll try to do this seated. Um, so he, so you got to put yourself in the mindset of this guy that has a dying wife, and the guy's wife is dying of a terminal illness, and she needs a specific medication. And Heinz is in this situation where he's like, okay, he tries to get the money for it. He can't. He tries to go to the bank. They won't give him the money. You know, he, he can't raise enough. His friends and family try to help, but they can't raise enough. So eventually he's getting desperate. His wife's situation is, is severely deteriorating. And so he decides he's going to actually go to the place where they met, where they manufacture the medication. And he's going to sit down with the person, the CEO of the company. And he's able to get this meeting. And he, he goes and sits down with the guy and he's, he pleads his case. He says, like, listen, man, I'll do anything. I'll work here for free for the rest of my life. I'll give you every paycheck I ever get. I I need to try to save my wife. And the guy kind of just like laughs him off and he's like, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, this is a business. And, and, you know, I got people that'll pay 10 times that for this. Now, during this conversation, the guy, the businessman gets a phone call. Okay. And so the phone call comes in and Guy takes the call and it's an important call and he has to get up and he's, we'll pretend this is a cordless phone. He gets up and he's kind of pacing around and he kind of turns his back to Heinz. Now this is an older guy, right? And Heinz realizes that he can take the package of drugs. Yep, I'll go get you some water in just one sec, okay? So he says to his daughter, I'll get you some more. No, I'm just joking. That was obviously improvised. So, so he's like, I'll, uh, so the guy turns his back and he's on his phone on this important call. And Heinz has the thought, like, this guy's older than me. I saw when I came in that this office is right by the front door. I could steal these drugs that are on the desk and get out of here. Even if that guard, I think I can take that guard. I think I can do this. Should he steal it? 
So he'd ask that question to kids. Now, I, I, I added tons of details because I was just freestyling it, but should he steal the drug? Why or why not? Now, he's not as interested in whether you say yes or no. What Kohlberg is interested in, in what Kohlberg is interested in is your why. Why should he or should he not? What is your moral reasoning? What is your moral reasoning for yes or no? Okay, so after reading the story, then the person's asked a series of questions. Okay, so basically, I tell you that dilemma, then I ask you a bunch of questions. Uh, Kohlberg concludes that there's basically three main levels of moral reasoning with two substages at each level. So basically, people answer in kind of a series of ways. Okay, so what determines the stage or level is not the specific judgment. So it's not like I say, okay, well, people that are four years old are most likely to say yes, and people that are eight years old are more likely to say no. It's more how they come to that answer. Although that wasn't a great example because actually the older people are, it actually does, the more likely they are to say steal it. The easier they are to see the contradiction, or not the contradiction, but the dilemma there that it's really a question between what you value more, the law around not stealing or preserving the life of your loved one. Okay, but the important piece here is what determines the stage or level of a person's judgment isn't the specific yes or no, but why? Right, because I might say, yes, you should steal it just because who cares about stealing? Now, that doesn't show that I have an evolved understanding of morality. Right. But if I'm like, well, maybe you should steal it because, you know, in the final scheme of things, what are you going to do? Let your wife die and at, at her funeral? Or are you going to be happy that you didn't break this one social contract of your community? Right. So it's like the reasoning around it is super important. The moral reasoning, his theory of moral reasoning. So. Sorry, I should have taken that drink before I started. But uh, according to Kohlberg, this word we're going to need to know for this next series of slides is conventional. Okay, so basically, if you want to add to your notes, that conventional just kind of means like what's socially approved, what's the conventions of society, what's what's considered normal behavior. Okay, so. What he's saying is that young kids are before that. They're pre-conventional, they're pre-that. They're taking their authority mainly from their parents. So whether they, how they answer this question tends to be focused on two of these two things. Like they don't wanna steal it because they don't wanna get in trouble. They're gonna do what they're told, obedience orientation, all right? They're, they're more focused on, on what them themselves should do, what would be the purpose to steal it, the exchange, right? So that. It's at this more I think the thing to focus on here is when they're saying yes or no, what are they thinking about when making that decision? And at this level, a lot of it is based on am I going to get in trouble? What do I know about how I should handle this situation based on authority told to me by judge by parental figures? So this is the pre-conventional stage. Okay, so then he's saying that as, as the kid gets older, then 
the way they answer that question is starting to be be formed by things like social rules. Judgments are being based by the kind of rules and what's considered normal in the group that they belong in. They're starting to, you know, talk about, well, you know, a good boy wouldn't do this. A, a, a nice girl wouldn't do that. Now, if a child's saying that in their mind, they have to have a conception of what a good boy or a nice girl is supposed to do. They're applying schemas. Okay. Or maybe they're talking about like the consequence or like the laws that says laws underneath um, the video here and order. Right. So maybe there's they're talking about like, you know, we don't want to get in trouble from the police. But notice how in pre-conventional, whether they're saying what they would do is being influenced a lot by what the parents were going to do if they're going to get mad. Now it's about what society's going to do. So conventional societal level. OK, and then the third level for Kohlberg is what he's calling post after conventional. So it's like this point where it's like that we're at now. Right. So as adults, we're at a post-conventional level of reasoning where that question to you is easy. If my daughter is dying of a rare condition that needs a specific medicine and I'm in that situation. And that guy turns his back and I know everyone's at home dying. Then I'll, I'll I will never run a faster hundred meter dash, you know. And I don't think many of you would blame me because you're using post-conventional reasoning. You're making judgments based on personal authority. You're using things like social contract orientation. That does not make sense than in a world of human beings living in a society of order. That that simple rule, you know, justifies the death of my loved one. And you start to move towards what would be considered universal ethical principles like sustaining life, right? Like the the very first slide there with Kohlberg, I mentioned that it's about things like human life, right? That the the my need to preserve the life of my wife is worth breaking a social rule. OK, so again, you, I don't need you guys overly focused on like stage one, two, three, four, five. I just want you to kind of know. Pre-conventional, conventional, post-conventional. Post that early on the kids using basically the parents as the authority, then basically the society, and then at the most developed form of moral reasoning, the self. Now the problem is, is that moral reasoning might not have developed well, right? So some people can have almost a deformed or warped moral reasoning. And then if they become the adult and they're using themselves as the authority, you can see where a situation can become problematic. So if you want to just take a, a look at this, um, if you're just listening, this is a hierarchy pyramid. So basically picture Maslow's pyramid that you can all picture. But on this, it's saying, OK, the kid kind of starts at the bottom at trying to just avoid punishment. And then the next level is like self-interest, like it'd be in their interest to do it or not. They, then the next level is like the good boy or good girl attitude. They want to try to be what they think is a good, you know, good boys don't steal, good girls don't steal. The, the next level is law and order. So doing what you're doing because of what the penalty associated with not wanting to break the law. Then as you go higher, it becomes like social contract. Like, is this even fair that we're doing this to each other at a human level? Or then at the top, it's this ethical principle, like in terms of the grander scheme of life and me maintaining my wife's life is so much more important than 
you know, getting, well, getting maybe arrested and put in jail for theft. That's the Heinz dilemma. Like, are you willing to do that? And, and the answer should be yes, I think. Like, what's the alternative? You, you don't steal and you're a good person for not stealing, but your, your loved one dies. Okay, so how does age relate to moral reasoning? Okay, so these stages tend to be loosely correlated with age. So it's not like you're five, so you're definitely saying this, and you're seven, and then you're definitely saying this. But in general, it seems to be related to age. As people get older, they tend to answer based on rationale higher in that hierarchy. Children usually reason in the first two stages. Stage three and four are most commonly seen in adolescence. Okay, so again, with a lot of these stage models, the critiques are that are not as model-like as they appear, but the the meaning that it's not like you're three, everyone that turns three then, then does this, and everyone that turns four, because there's so much individual difference in humanity. Um, but as a generalized stage model, it does seem to make sense that moral reasoning and age are connected. Now, uh, one critique of this model, though, has been raised by a psychologist named Nancy Ensberg, who brings up this idea of empathy. And is it really that age is changing how they're doing it? Or is that as they're getting older, their empathy is developing? So their ability to put themselves in another person's shoe is changing, right? So as they're getting older, they're getting basically better able to view themselves as hinds. And is that just it? Is it all just that, that the reason they answer the question differently isn't because they're changing how they're viewing right or wrong. It's just that they're getting better at viewing themselves as the main character in the story. And the more that they view themselves as the main character in the story, the more it justifies stealing. Damn, that's a strong critique. The ability to identify with others' emotions is both, like, both a cause and consequence of moral development. I stumbled on that. Let me read that again. The ability to identify with others' emotions is both a cause and consequence of moral development. You guys wonder why it seems like I speak right into the keyboard. It's because I got the mic right here. Uh, they're age-related and individual differences in ability to regulate emotions that need to be considered. There definitely are, right? So it's both of these things. Again, it's a competition for ideas, but I think they both have a point. Again, guys, I apologize for, you know, the bit of family noise in the background, whether it's uh, my wife upstairs or, or my daughter hammering up and down the stairs and playing. And But if you guys can put up with a tiny bit of that, then I don't have to hide out on the balcony. And, uh, you know, although I don't mind doing that and I'll, I will, I'll switch it up, but. Um, this is like midday on a Sunday, so one twenty-four on Sunday. So here, we'll keep going here. So criminality. So how does this relate to delinquent behavior or to um, antisocial behavior? Criminality is antisocial behavior, basically, right? The opposite of behavior that promotes social bonding. I think you could say that, at least in most cases. Uh, lawbreakers are distinguished from those who participate in other social behaviors, so it's almost like we view uh, a lot of things as antisocial, but only a uh, subcategory of that is criminal. Youth who commit offenses appear to be behind their peers in role-taking skills. Okay, 
So what that suggests is that one of the reason behind some criminal behavior might be a, a lack of ability to picture how it's affecting the victim. Now that would make sense, especially in things in terms of things like petty theft and vandalism and a lot of teenager related antisocial behavior. Okay, so I just want to make a real quick point. You might notice I dropped a couple slides there that uh, I thought just kind of said the same thing. So I said earlier that it was going to be 51 slides or something. I think it's going to be 47. Um, we're on 40. Okay, so we're getting there. If you guys hang in here, 10 more minutes. Um, an increase in conflict in the great majority of families with teenagers doesn't necessarily signify a disruption in the quality of parent-child relationships. And I think that's a really important point because what that basically means is even though there's a lot more fighting in the house, a lot more arguing with your teenager, it's important to realize that some of that is because they're in a way more dramatic life situation than they were a few years ago. And that it doesn't necessarily mean that your relationship with them is any worse and that you're actually still super important in their life, whether they would articulate that to you or not. And then uh, just continuing on from that last slide, a teenager's underlying emotional attachment to their parents tends to remain strong. So if you're, if you're uh, a parent with teenagers, that might sound interesting, right? So it's a the idea that the increase in argument and conflict is often heavily influenced by the fact that they got so much going on in their life for the first time, kind of. And so it's creating tensions at home in their interactions with you that don't necessarily reflect a lack of core attachment bond. A teenager's sense of well-being or happiness is more strongly correlated with the quality of their attachment to their parents than their quality of their attachment with their peers. That is a very important point. It's not saying that they could necessarily articulate it. It's like if you could judge their attachment quality to their parents and their attachment quality to their peers and then their mental health, and you could correlate it all, this, this research suggests that their sense of happiness is more strongly correlated with that attachment to parents still. Still meaning, like, still at this age, because that was obviously the case when they were younger. At this stage in life, also, our friendships tend to become more intimate, right? If you think about a lot of us, even myself included, most of my best friends are my best friends from back in the day at EDSS, Elmira High School, right? Because, well, for a bunch of reasons, we played sports together, We that's when you had a lot of that time. Teens' uh, friendships are increasingly intimate in the sense that adolescent friends share more and more of their inner secrets and knowledge and and uh, feelings or whatever, just in the sense that the, just the depth increases dramatically at an individual and at a relationship level is kind of the point. The individual level facilitates the ability to do it socially or, you know, maybe the other way around. That's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing. Okay, next slide. I think uh, another interesting point here is that as as we get later in our teen years, we start to really value things like loyalty and faithfulness a lot more um, than just shared activity, right? It's like there might be friends that you have even now that you're so different then, but you have each other's back and you feel like they're loyal to you and you're faithful to each other and that that almost trumps the fact that you guys, you know, you don't like the same sports, you think their music is terrible, whatever. It's like at a certain point, 
at our age, once you're an adult, you just don't care about that. It's like they're a good person. You know, adolescent friendships start to become more stable than those of younger children. More long-term. Okay, just a few more slides on, on friendship. Peer groups tend to become more stable, as I said. Uh, as if a discrepancy between the ideas and the behaviors and stuff like that of the individual and their friends becomes too great, that's often sourced as a reason for why people switch friend groups and stuff like that. And that makes complete sense in terms of identity development and trying to figure out how we fit into this complicated, multi-dimensional, multi-layered social dynamic. Now, I think this is really interesting. Um, the point here is that we tend to talk about peer pressure as a negative thing, especially in like media or be like, hey, you want to smoke this cigarette or this joint or do you want to have this alcohol? It's like some teenager at a party or something and like some, I don't know, just common movie theme. And although that definitely does happen, I think it's interesting to point out that the research suggests that the majority of peer pressure is actually pushing people towards more positive things. Uh, when peer pressure is exp get like, come on, man, let's, get, let's we're going to be late for practice if you don't hurry up or let's go, let's get to class or let's let's work out today or let's, you know, you want to get together and watch a movie, which is you know good for both of us bonding wise and emotionally. Like a lot of peer pressure isn't just towards negative things. Actually, when it's explicitly exerted, so when it's actually done on purpose, it tends to be towards positive things such as school involvement and actually away from doing bad things or what we call it like misconduct bad behavior. Okay, I think it's helpful to view this idea that adolescent peer influence isn't all bad or, or all good. It's just heavy. It has the potential to be a heavy influence in either direction. Uh, this slide's not super important, but I just want you to know the difference in these terms for the test. A clique is these are terms used to often talk about uh, social groupings in adolescence. A clique, four to six people who appear to be strongly attached to one another. You might have had your own little clique in high school. Whereas a crowd, you might have, a bunch of those cliques might have went to parties together, and you'd call that a crowd. When I think back to my Elmira days, which are now like 20 years ago, oh my god. Um, you know, we had our clique and our crowds. Crowds are usually organized into clear, widely understood pecking orders, whether it's spoken or unspoken. So I think this is kind of, there's my buddy Rocky. So a uh, good friend from back in the EDSS days. Uh, and that's a picture of us, me holding Evelyn and him holding Stanley. Or two kids at the time, right? Or still, but or two babies at the time. By late adolescence, social groups become mixed in gender, often composed of dating couples. So, and that's true now too, right? A lot of it's like me and my wife going hang out with my buddy and his wife, and in this case, Rob and his his wife Eric is also an incredibly close friend of mine. So they're both my buddies. But you know, this idea of hanging out in couples becomes a thing a lot more, and that continues big time into adulthood. Mutual friendships and dating pairs become more central to social interaction in later adolescence uh, than cliques or crowds. 
I need that was lame. I need like a mixing board to sound me off. Okay, so we're now done. We're, we've reached the conclusion. We're we're closing in on an hour forty five. I hope that wasn't too painful to listen to. And uh, if you're still listening, man, let me know how that went. Um, I can't do much about little minor interruptions. I can't do much about the head shine. Uh, but I hope um, that helps make some of that stuff clear. Okay, so two more of these coming, and then we're done the course. And then, as I said, I might still drop those other ones later, but um, my immediate goal is to get stuff relevant to test three out here for you guys. Okay, so this is going to be up hopefully as soon as this renders, and hopefully it saves okay. And uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. Okay, so I'll probably get another one of these out to you at least before our next meeting, but um, we're, we got another Zoom coming up Friday at 11. It's like 1040. All right, I'll send an invite with the Zoom link maybe like the day before or whatever. Okay, HSF Digital Academy Basement Laboratory Session. <laughs> Signing out. If you guys are music makers and want to make me a cool thing or something that'd be awesome all right anyways cheers and uh love you guys hang in there